Good morning, Mission View. Man, that was awesome, wasn't it? I love, I love watching the kids do their thing. I got to see it a little early because they had a rehearsal and stuff, so that was pretty, wow, that's heavy. Man, I felt really good about myself until I tried to grab that right there, man. I was like, man, this service is going to start out great, and I just threw my back out. Wow, I had no idea, Greg. Let's give Greg a hand. That was a, a feat of strength right there. We talked about Goliath last week, but it's got nothing on Greg. Well, my name's Matt. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, man, I'm so glad that you're here to worship with us today. Um, let's give the kids another round of applause. I'm just... Tim did a, a great job, Stephanie, with the kids. We have an amazing um, children's ministry here. Um, not only do they do special things like this for Christmas, but each and every week, your kids are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are getting God's word, and they are getting the gospel. And there's nothing, nothing better than that. So um, what an opportunity. What an opportunity to invest in the next generation and... Um, and give it away to the kids. So if you don't serve in our community, we'd love to have you serve in there. And it's a great opportunity to extend the kingdom right here in our midst for the future of, of the church. So anyways, well, we are in our Advent series. This is the fourth week. And we started out this whole thing by saying that this book, this is actually the Bible, it is a collection of 66 books spanning thousands of years with lots of different authors and different things. But this book of 66 books tells one epic one amazing story. And we said that, that this story that it tells is a love story. And what an appropriate week of Advent to talk about that amazing love story that God wrote and then God planned out and worked out for us. So we are going to be looking, we've taken this journey all through scripture. We started out in week one in Genesis one, where it all started, where it all began with creation. And we said, what did we say? We said, God created everything, and he said it was? Man, you guys are, you're good. You're getting that every week. God said that it was very good, but it didn't last long. Like two chapters later, humanity makes the greatest mistake ever, and they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which God said not to eat of, and it all just tanks. It all just goes downhill. And it was, it was horrible. It was one of the, the worst things that ever happened. We said that when, when that happened, God saw what was going to go on. God lives outside of time. And, and, and when that fruit was tasted, God saw the tragedies in life. He saw what sin would do, the, the havoc that it would wreak on the planet. He saw it all. His heart was broken for humanity. And as he's, he's kind of divvying out the consequences of this sin, he looks to the serpent and he makes a strange statement that we talked about. A strange statement. He says that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And that the serpent would bruise his foot. Alluding to something. Alluding to someone. That from the very beginning, God had a plan to redeem us. That he had a plan of hope for you and me from the very beginning. This is, this is where it all started. What an amazing thing that God would do. So we, we ventured on and 
And we moved from the garden and we told the story of the Exodus and how God sent Moses. See, God chose a people, a a special people that he would preserve and provide for and protect, that this people would usher in his one and only son. He would protect this people, this bloodline that would bring his son to the earth. Well, the Israelites, the Jews, his chosen people were were in Egypt, and they got put into captivity. It was, it was good at first, you know, and Joseph, Joseph was the one that kind of started all there, and he was famous in Egypt, saved Egypt from a, from a tra- tragedy, a tragic, um, uh, uh, what was it? Famine. 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 Thank you very much. That's what it is. That's what happens when I don't read my notes. This tragic famine, and, and he, he interprets the dreams that Pharaoh was having. And, and God spares him, and God sets him up. And so the Jews were, were revered in Egypt. But over time, they forgot about Joseph, and, and the Jews flourished in Egypt. And in fact, there were so many Jews that Pharaoh got kind of concerned, and he kind of clamps down on them, and, and he uses them as slaves. And the next thing you know, the Jews are slaves in Egypt, and, and Pharaoh is a, a terrible slave master driving them, working them, working literally to death. And so God raises up Moses and Moses goes in and he says, Moses, go set my people free. And we told the story of, of how, how God sent all these plagues and the final plague was, was terrible. It was awful that uh, the, the Jews would have to, to kill the, a pure and spotless lamb and, and take its blood and put it on their doorpost. And the angel of death would actually pass over their household and not kill their firstborn sons. A terrible, terrible thing. But they... they get set free from, from captivity in Egypt, and they remember Passover. This is where Passover began. And God said, you're going to remember this time. You're going to remember this Passover for all time, and I want you to celebrate Passover from, from here on out, remembering that I spared you, that I set you free from captivity. And to this day, the Jews celebrate Passover, and we as Christians celebrate Passover as well when we take communion. And we talked about how in the New Testament, Jesus changed everything about Passover. As he was celebrating Passover with his disciples, the night that he was betrayed, he took the third cup of wine that they would take as Passover. It was the cup of redemption. He would take that third cup and he he said, I'm going to change this now forever. From now on, from now on, when you take this cup of redemption, remember me. This represents my blood shed for you. And he changed Passover forever. And then he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, from now on, when you break this bread, remember me. This is my body broken for you. So we see this amazing foreshadowing of Passover. We see this amazing thing that that God did in the Exodus, and we see that that Jesus changed it all in the New Testament for you and me. And we're making this journey from Genesis to Exodus. And then the Israelites, you know, God chose the Israelites to be his people, and he said that they would be his people. He would be their God. It was all going to be good, but that wasn't good enough for the Israelites. They looked around at the other peoples in the land, and they said, all these other people have kings. We want a king. God's like, I'm your king. They go, no, we want a a human king. You know, God, you're not good enough. 
And so we, went, we moved into the era of the kings. And last week, we looked at a king in the Bible, and it was King David and, and how he made his, his incoming to the scene, you know. It's, he fought Goliath. What a powerful, powerful scene that was. You know, God's armies, the armies of Israel standing there battling the Philistines, and Goliath comes out nine feet, nine inches tall. This monster of a man. David comes. He's just bringing food to his brothers who are on the front lines. He's not a warrior. He's, he's a shepherd boy. And he sees this monster man standing and mocking the armies of the living God, David said. And he sees, he sees his brothers and the rest of the army just shaking in their boots. He says, what are you guys doing? Don't you know who we serve? We serve the living God. Well, you know how the story goes. He kills Goliath, and God uses David to do an amazing thing there. But there's so much more to David's life that we talked about. There's so many things that God did in David's life that, that were, were really actually kind of crazy. Not just that he killed Goliath, but that, that David walked in a couple different roles that, that he shouldn't have. That, that David was the king, and, and he was also a priest. That was just something that was unheard of and never supposed to happen, but God allowed that. And and we talked about all these other different things that David did and David lived out that point us to someone greater, that kind of foreshadow of a coming king and a a coming priest who, who would be the one for us, that actually the life of David and some of those amazing supernatural things that God did in his life were meant to actually point us to Christ. And I said that, you know, sometimes we read these stories about these, these amazing guys that, that God used, and we can get all caught up in the glory of David and, and who he is and forget who this entire story, this epic, is about. Jesus, our Savior, who came to save you and me. Well, this week we move on to the next era, and that's the era of the, the prophets, And we're going to be in Isaiah today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 49. So we were in the kings last week. We move on to the prophets this week. So here the Israelites have all these kings. And you know what? The kings did a terrible job. None of them did very good. I mean, the, the Jews, they wanted a king. God gave them what they wanted. And, and man, the kings failed miserably. So God has to send the prophets. Prophets were these guys that heard from the Lord and told the people what the Lord said and what the Lord wanted. And over and over and over again, what you see as you read through the prophets is that God comes to these prophets and says, the Israelites, they have strayed from me. I, you know, I had everything set up. I, I gave them the law. I told them how, you know, what to do that would be good for them and to protect them, but they just don't listen. So my prophet, Isaiah, go to these guys, tell them to come back to me. Tell them that if they don't come back to me, there's going to be these terrible things that are going to happen. Eventually, this is all going to just unfold. It'll be terrible. Let them know and tell them to come back to me, to do the things that I've called them to do. Tell them that they are my people, that I will provide for them, that I know what's best for them. And we see this over and over and over again, prophet after prophet after prophet, hundreds and hundreds of years of the Israelites hearing and walking with God and then, then going off and worshiping idols and, and God sends a prophet. And they fall away and God sends a prophet. 
And they fall away and God sends a prophet. It's hard for me sometimes to read through the prophets. Because I'm like, when are these guys going to get it? I mean, how many times? How many times is God going to have to just smack them upside the head with these prophets? But then, you know, as I'm reading it, God always says, Matt, Matt, that's you. (laughs) How many times am I going to have to smack you upside the head and tell you to come back to me? You know, God puts the stuff in his word on purpose, right? And he shows us so many things about, about man, about humanity, about our hearts, about our, our tendencies. But greater than that, what God shows us is his heart. Think about hundreds and hundreds of years of betrayal that God's chosen people would turn their backs on him for hundreds of years over and over again. What does God do? Over and over again, he sends a prophet. And over and over again, he comes to you and me and he says, I am your God. You are mine and I have plans for you. God has plans for you today. All right, let's jump into this. Isaiah's an amazing book. I, as I've, I've studied it more and more, I remember studying it at seminary, but man, it is... It's a wild, wild book. I just want to give us some kind of reference about this book because there's a lot to it. It's broken down into a few sections here. And and as I said before, Isaiah is sent by God to call the people back to God. They've strayed. And Isaiah has two messages that he sends in this book. The first one is God's judgment. It's like, listen up. If you're not going to listen, it's going to be a price to pay. If you keep down this road, if you keep worshiping idols and doing all these terrible things, there's, this is going to be really bad. His second message is a message of hope. And this goes on where he shares this, this message, message of judgment, and then he would share a message of hope. And we see this through the first 39 chapters, this back and forth. God's judgment, but there's hope. God's judgment, but there's hope. A really interesting thing about Isaiah. As he starts sharing about the hope to Israel, he starts saying some really weird words. He starts talking about a Savior, a Savior to come. And and at first you're like, okay, maybe it's like another David, you know, to save them from Goliath, or maybe it's like another king or something. But then he starts getting even weirder. And in chapter 40, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, takes a huge shift, a huge turn. And Isaiah starts prophesying about Jesus. There's no denying it. It's an amazing prophetic word, 720 years before Jesus is even going to show up. So I've entitled this sermon, The Gospel, 720 B.C., Amazing thing. So as we, as we read through this, let's think about the implications of a prophet talking about Jesus 720 years before he actually shows up. This is crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Let's pray before we read God's word today. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And, and as we open up the book of Isaiah, God, I pray that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts to see and receive the truths of your word today. God, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you that, that there's, there's so much that you, you have planned and that, that you have supernaturally worked out 
for us to even be sitting here right now today. So Father, use me, use me. For your glory and for your kingdom, we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 49, starting in verse 1. This is where Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, takes an amazing turn. It says this, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Okay, this is weird. This is not Isaiah talking. This is, this is something completely different. If we were to, to read earlier in Isaiah, and I encourage you to do so, you would hear a, a drastic change of events. Now, you may be thinking, as I read this verse, it sounds like another verse that you may be familiar with, and you would be correct. Actually, there are a few verses similar to this, but they're found in the New Testament. In Luke 1, 30 through 31, it says this, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now let's go back to Isaiah 49, verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. So who's talking right here? Jesus. Jesus is talking through the prophet Isaiah. Now we see it again in Isaiah 7, 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah, not Luke. This is 700 years before Jesus shows up. We have a word that tells us he will be born of a virgin, that he will be named while he's in the womb. And it came to pass. Some 700 years before his arrival, the prophet Isaiah foretold his coming and how he would arrive. Let's move on to verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Here we have more that sounds like something we've heard before. This text in Isaiah reads more like something in the New Testament. Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. Wow! He made my mouth like a sharp sword. And it says right in Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active. And in verse 13, it goes on, and no creature is hidden from his sight. Amazing. It's amazing to see the prophetic words given about Christ. And I love it. I have so many atheist friends. I love having conversations with them and talking about science and talking about history and different things. One of the undeniable crazy, miraculous, supernatural things about Christianity is the Bible. That we have literally hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament, hundreds of years before things were to pass, that actually have come true. And, and these aren't just like spiritual prophecies that relate to Christianity. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about kingdoms overthrowing kingdoms that are actually documented history. 
250 years before a kingdom was overthrown, it's prophesied in the Bible by a prophet that it would happen. It's amazing. Amazing. I love talking to atheists about that. They're like, well, that's pretty interesting. I'm like, yeah, it is, isn't it? There's more to this book. This is no normal book. It is God's very word for you and me today. Moving on, verse 2. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. This word polished is a Hebrew word, barar, which means to purify or pure or cleansed. Jesus was sent to atone for or cleanse us of our sins. He's like an arrow that was pure and sent to purify. And Christ was hidden away until his time had come. God sent Christ at a specific time for a specific purpose purpose through a specific people. All of this planning and work was done on purpose to fulfill God's ordained will so that we would look and see and know that he is God. That there would be no mistaking that Jesus is the Christ, the one true Son of God. Of God. Look at to the look to the extents that God went to preserve a people. From that very first promise in the garden, when he said to the serpent, The woman's seed will crush your head. Think about that. Look at the lengths God went to make sure that would happen. It is amazing. It's mind-blowing. It's of biblical proportions, literally. God has a plan. That's what all this means. That God has a plan. That God has the power to fulfill that plan. It's amazing. Verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. What he's talking about, this is God talking to the son. This is God talking to Jesus and he calls him Israel because Jesus is the ultimate representation of Israel. When he goes to the cross, he's not just taking sin. He's taking all sin, all of our sin on himself. He is all of our representation on the cross. It's not just him by himself up there. It is all of our sin. He is a representative He is all of our representative. When we put our trust in him, when we look to him, he takes our sin on himself in the cross. Christ came from Israel just like God said he would. And he is the ultimate representative of Israel. So much so that God calls him Israel. And in so doing, drives home the point, this seed of the woman, this seed of Abraham and King David, This is God's son. God is glorified in his son, Jesus. And Jesus said things like that. He said things like this. If you have seen me, you have seen the father. And he said things like, I only do what I see the father doing. Jesus was Emmanuel or God with us in the flesh. But humanity rejected him. They rejected him. In verse 4, we find, find that out. But I said, I have labored in vain, says Jesus talking. I have spent my strength for nothing, 
and vanity. You see, Jesus experienced great loss and rejection. And John 1, verses 10 through 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And in Isaiah, again, in, in, in chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, it says, we, we again hear of this prophesied uh, suffering servant. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. How in the world does Isaiah know this? 700, some 700 years before Jesus even shows up. The terrible suffering Jesus would endure was understood from the very beginning. God knew the price that would have to be paid because of Adam and Eve's sin. Think about this now. Think about it. That as soon as Eve takes that fruit, eats it, hands it to Adam, and he, he eats it. God saw Christ on the cross. Think of the price that had to be paid. And we go on in Isaiah here. It says, yet surely my right is with the Lord, Jesus says. And my recompense or reward with my God. All right, the first amazing truth I want to pull out of this text is that we see here, 700 years before his arrival, that Jesus was sent. You can fill this in in your program as you got, as you came in. There's some fill-ins. This is the first fill-in. Jesus is our deliverer. Jesus is our deliverer. Now, there are two, two ways that we can read this text. We read it with its supernatural, prophetic revelation of the coming of Christ some 720 years before he comes. And we read it with an understanding of the implications that it actually came to pass. It actually came to pass. You see, the Israelites could have heard this from Isaiah and been like, yeah, whatever, bro. When I see it, I'll believe it. But just don't come at me with that stuff, man. I don't even know what you're talking about. They could just blow him off. And that's actually what they did. They just blew him off. We don't have that luxury. We live in a time where we know that Jesus was a real guy who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, rose the third day, was witnessed by over 500 witnesses, then ascended into, the, into heaven and where he sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for you and me. We have thousands of years of divine prophetic revelation that has been meticulously and miraculously preserved and confirmed over and over again by archaeological discoveries, historical documentation, and hundreds of years of textual criticism proving the authenticity, reliability of Scripture. We cannot sit here and say, I'll believe it when I see it. It has been seen. It has been documented, and he is God, and he is coming again. 
whether we like it or not. The good news about all this is that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus is our Savior. God promised and God provided. This is one of the coolest things about Christianity. One of the the things that sets Christianity apart from all other religions. You see, every other religion and every other ism says, be good, be good, do this, do all of these things, and don't do any of these things. And as long as you can do more good than you've done bad, and all that good balances out or, or overweighs the bad in your life, you can earn your way into some type of paradise. In Christianity, it says, we can't do it. We are completely dependent and need a Savior. And God says, oh, you know what? I'll do that. God sets the standard of perfection and, and per, just unbelievable perfection. He says, you can't do it. When he handed the law to the Israelites, it was for their protection. But it was also to reveal to them that they needed him. Because no man can live up to the law that God has set except for one. And his name is Jesus. So we serve a God who came down and became man and actually lived out that perfect life. Jesus was perfect in thought and in deed. And what did we do to him? We killed him for it. He was murdered. And in so doing, by the creator actually, actually allowing his creation to kill him, think about that for a second, He made a way for you and me to be in right relationship with God. Creator, creation. Each and every one of us was created with a God-sized void in our hearts and in our lives. You may be here today and you've been going through life looking and searching for something, trying to fill your life with with money or or entertainment or fun or drugs or alcohol or, or women or whatever it may be. You've tried to fill your life with things that you thought were good, that you thought could fulfill you. And I'm here to tell you today that there's only one who can fulfill you and give you lasting joy, ultimate satisfaction that never lets you down. And his name is Jesus. He's the only one who can fill the void. And we have looked from Genesis and we're going to be in Matthew tomorrow night all the way through this book. It's a love story of a creator God who creates us out of love. He didn't need us. He wasn't desperate for us. He didn't need somebody. He wasn't up there crying in a corner being lonely. He was perfectly fine, but out of love, he created you and me so that we could be in relationship with him. God loves you. And he sent Jesus to be a deliverer for you and for me. Moving on, verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is one of the most insane prophecies the Israelites would have ever heard. 
They have been God's chosen people for hundreds of years. They were his only chosen people. But right here, right now, God says, it's not just Israel. I am going to send one that's going to make a way for everyone to have the opportunity to come to me. They, they were listening to this. They probably thought Isaiah just fell off his rocker. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. For the nations. You know, it was just the Jews. But God says right here, 700 years before Jesus comes, that when Jesus comes, the Gentiles would have a way. And if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. That's kind of how the Bible talks. That's me and probably most of us here today. God made a way for us through Jesus Christ. And we see it 700 years before he shows up. This is crazy. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you, the restoration of Israel. The second filling he notes is this, Jesus' arrival made redemption available to the nations. So we have seen that God has chosen a people and that people were the Israelites, the Jews, to bring his son into the world. And up to this point in the prophets, that is all we have seen. But now we see the bigger picture. It's bigger than the Jews. It's bigger than the one bloodline, one specific tribe. God is opening the door. He will open the door. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. What did Jesus, this makes me think of that scripture in the New Testament. I come to bring you a new and better covenant. Jesus is that new and better covenant. Initially, the covenant with God's chosen people, the Jews, was the law. Jesus came and gave us grace. That's what he's talking about right here. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, heritages that we are going to have an inheritance. This is so big. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind or sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. The third feeling is this. God will make all the wrong things right through Jesus. 
Did you hear this, this big emotional shift in the text as we were reading it? It goes, this is, a, this is actually called the servant's song um, in scripture. But you can hear, this is like the chorus, the crescendo of the song. And God is talking to us about heaven. He's going to make it all right. He's, he's saying, you captives, be set free. What did Jesus come to do? Set us free from bondage to sin, to make a way that we would have an inheritance. The Bible says that even right now, Jesus is up preparing a place for you and me. That we have an inheritance in eternity with God the Father. Huge shift in the text. This is God saying, I'm going to make all the wrong things right. All the suffering all the pain that sin has brought into this world, all the frustration and anguish and questions death has left, God says, I will intervene and bring peace. Think about the thousands of years that have passed since the garden. God sees it. He sees it all. And through the prophet Isaiah, he is saying, I am still working my plan of redemption for you. Jesus came for you and for me to make a way. I don't, I don't know if you, you hear or are getting the weight of this truth, the prophetic implication of what God is saying 700 years before Jesus is going to show up. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is going to change the world forever and it was meant to change you and me forever. There's more to it. There's more to it. The last fill-in in your notes is this. Jesus came so that we would go so that we would go. We have a job to do. We have a people to reach. There are 200,000 people in Stark County that claim no religious affiliation at all. We're going to reach out to those people. We are going to reach to the nations with missionaries and, and other churches like we prayed for this morning. God has given us a mission. Everyone has a mission for God. He's called us to the lost and the dying, the widow and the orphan, those who don't know him yet. We don't do that just sitting around here on Sunday mornings. We are called to go and be salt and light to reveal hope in a hopeless world. I like to say it this way. You can't come in contact with the creator of the universe and just keep it to yourself. It's impossible. We can't come in contact with God and then just go home and not tell anybody. If we've really, if we've really been changed, if God's really made an impact on my life and changed me, I've got to go tell somebody about it. Because it is way too good of a thing for me to sit on and not say anything about. That God has saved me that he saved me from my sin, that I was dead in my sin and trespasses, and out of his grace and love, just 
unmerited favor, unwarranted grace. He just stepped in and he, he breathed life into dead, dry bones. That was me. How can I sit on that? How can I not tell somebody about that? And now as I live my life, instead of selflessly for myself, I live it for others. God starts doing this amazing work in me called sanctification. It just means change. And he starts changing me. And people start saying, man, what is up with you? You're, you're a little different. People see it in us. Jesus came so that we would leave this place and take him to the world. That's who God's called us to be and do. God is calling you. Let's be a people. Let's be a church that talk about what God has done in us. Let's have those conversations, those, those holy conversations set apart, where it's not just about the weather. It's not just about, you know, the big Christmas gift this year, but it's the big Christmas gift this year. Jesus. That's who God's called us to be. Man, I hope as, as we've gone through this sermon series, and we've seen the extravagant lengths that God has went to in order to, you know, call a people and preserve that people, that preserve that bloodline to, to set up that people for Jesus to come. That Jesus was in the bloodline of King David. Isn't that crazy? He did all of that to show us he is God. He's in control. And he has plans for you and me. This is the greatest love story ever told. And it doesn't end with Jesus. God is saying, come be a part of this story. Come be a part of Jesus's story. That's my invitation to you today. Come be a part of Jesus's story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. And God, we pray that you would do a work that only you can do in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ was actually preached hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years before he ever showed up. What a miracle that is, God. We recognize that. We thank you that you are God, you are in control, and we surrender our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen.